Welcome to Notice History, the podcast where we uncover the history all around us. As always, we're your hosts, Robin Mullins, Nick Bridges, and Keely McCavitt. Many of us start our days with the same thing on our minds. The hero of the wee hours, the rocket fuel for the daily commute, and the co-author of many a dissertation. You guessed it, coffee. Drinking coffee is not only a delightful caffeine injection to kickstart your day, it is also one of the most common rituals shared with friends and family in North America and around the world. It bolsters even the most awkward social interactions with a location, a coffee shop, and a purpose to get coffee. Coffee and coffee shops are a major part of Canadian culture, and everybody has their favorite place to stop and grab a cup of joe. Are you more of a Starbucks person? Do you often get a second cup at second cup? Or are you a born and bred lover of national treasure, Tim Hortons? Whichever you prefer, your cup of coffee is part of a bigger story. Today we are going to investigate the history of this beloved beverage, a history that will take us across centuries and around the world. So, get comfortable and grab your favorite mug, because this week we are noticing the history of coffee culture. However, I will note that one of the ways you most often describe coffee was lacking from that intro. Which, which is what? You have often told me that you find coffee to be like a firm handshake on the way out the door in the morning It for is you. a firm handshake. <laughs> <laughs> Best of luck with the trials of the day. <laughs> Like, goodbye and good luck. Basically, yeah. That's a, that's a weird way to describe uh, filtered bean juice. It's just, it's the only way that I can describe it. <laughs> I think it's a better way than describing it as filtered bean juice. <laughs> Full of cream and sugar. <laughs> the best part. Well, that's right. Well, what do you guys take in your coffee? I know you're more of a tea drinker, Nick, but yeah. when you have coffee, what do you have in it? Uh, I like to live like the Beastie Boys, so I like my sugar with coffee and cream. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> what about you, Robin? Uh, so I don't drink coffee very regularly because I have very high standards for my coffee. Mm. And my favorite coffee is from a local Ottawa roastery from Almont called Equator Coffee, which now has quite a few locations across the city. And I live down the street from one of them. So I, if I'm going to drink coffee, it's only going to be one of their cups because it's just so good. And mm. it is probably going to be a latte because why not? Steamed milk is just makes everything better. See, I don't like sweet coffee. I always just get a cup of coffee with some milk in it. And my favorite one is a brand called Las Chicas. And it's actually, I don't know where it's from, but you can buy it in London. And it is so good. And everything else is just a stand-in. Weak handshakes, like limp-wristed handshakes in the morning. But Las Chicas is like proper business standard handshake. (laughs) You know, some might say that the two of you with your very, very quality tastes of coffee are really just expressing class structure. That's... (laughs) (laughs) I had no idea you would take it there. (laughs) Oh, we'll get into it. (laughs) I think that's... It's branding, right? It's flavor and it's branding. And who... Yeah, I don't know. I think that's fair. Yeah, it's it's coffee culture, right? There is a culture that's been Mm -hmm. established and whether it's the brand itself or it's the type of coffee or where it's coming from, um, there's just so much wrapped up in the identity of the type of coffee that we drink and who we are and what it says about us Mm. that we specifically have Starbucks or whatever it's going to be. I think it's a big part of it. But before we get into coffee culture and identity too much, let's delve a bit into the history of coffee. 
It is widely accepted that Ethiopia is the birthplace of coffee, though how and when it was discovered has not been agreed upon. Rather than rely on detailed accounts, which don't exist, the historical narrative of coffee's origins has been founded upon stories and myths. One of the well-known legends tells the story of a goat herd named Kaldi, who one day noticed that his goats were acting strangely, running about, butting into one another, dancing on their hind legs, and bleeding excitedly. Initially believing them to be possessed, Kaldi watched them continue to eat red berries from a tree he had never seen before. Kaldi himself followed suit and began to feel the side effects of coffee, believing he would never feel tired again. How, how does someone go from thinking that their goats are possessed to then being like, I need this? I think he's just up for anything. He's like, I am bored. <laughs> this is awesome. It just it took a real turn, didn't it? It was like, no, my goats are possessed. Something's horribly wrong. I'll go eat that. Oh, if it's good for the goats, it's good for me. Mm. <laughs> good for the goose, good, good for, for the gander. <laughs> so another variation of this legend was that a monk had witnessed the erratic behavior of the goat herd and his goats, so still on the same same kind of wavelength, and then decided to try them himself. He noticed that he was able to stay awake during prayers and so shared this information with his fellow monks, and from there, it would spread. Coffee began its journey eastward, crossing the Red Sea to Yemen, where its consumption continued to spread and a coffee culture took hold in Arabia. It is possible that this could have occurred in the 6th century when Ethiopians invaded what is now Yemen and set up coffee plantations there. Initially, it was believed to contain medicinal properties and was also used by Arab monks to stay awake for prayer. Over time, it began to trickle down and be enjoyed by the wealthy exclusively for ceremonial purposes. For those who were less well-off, coffee houses known as cavacanes were introduced and thus contributed to the expansion of coffee consumption on not only a wider scale, but becoming a beverage of regular consumption. So coffee was not only seen as a potent stimulant, but the habit of coffee drinking allowed for people to have social gatherings, something that's still continuing on today. By the 15th century, due to the movement from Islamic traders and pilgrims, coffee had spread throughout modern-day Turkey, the Middle East, and North Africa coincidentally, where Islam was the dominant religion. But coffee culture in this period wasn't anything like it is today in North America. If we can go back to the birthplace of coffee, Ethiopia, they have a really complex coffee ceremony. Coffee remains a beverage there used to gather people together. Although coffee's preparation in Canada has been limited to a post-roast and ready-to-use beverage, in other parts of the world, coffee preparation still largely remains in the home, with its preparation beginning before the actual roasting of the coffee beans. A remarkably different way of consuming coffee is seen in Ethiopia, where coffee is served in an elaborate ceremony performed by a single woman for her family, friends and neighbors, done every day, even multiple times a day. To begin, usually, long pieces of grass are laid out on the floor to decorate the area where the coffee will be prepared. The grass can either be real or synthetic. Above the grass lies a small two-tier table with miniature, handleless, and decorative cups that are placed on the top level of the table, and beside it is a coal stove coffee grinder, and incense. Arguably, the most important feature of the ceremony is the coffee pot, which is made from clay and has a round bottom with a narrow spout and a handle on the side. Once everything is prepared and participants have gathered, the woman hosting begins by first cleaning the raw beans and then roasts them on the coal stove by either shaking or stirring the beans over the stove. Once a woman determines that the beans are ready to grind, she walks to each participant with the roasted beans, allowing them to take a whiff of the smell by cupping their hands and motioning it towards their face. The roasted beans are then ground and poured into the pot, followed by water, where it boils, and when the coffee is brewed, the host begins pouring it into the cups, and simultaneously, incense is burned. Now to the fun part. We get to actually drink the coffee. 
but this is still done in a three-step process. So the first round of the brewed coffee is the strongest and the tastiest. Depending on the region, it can be taken with butter, sugar, salt, or black, but never milk. Following the first round, more water is added to the pot and boiled to make a slightly diluted coffee. And finally, the last step of the ceremony, or the blessing, again, water is added to the coffee pot and boiled, and the participants drink the weakened coffee. In this final round, as the name suggests, blessings are given to the host in a number of ways. Have you guys ever had butter in your coffee? So the coffee shop that I mentioned earlier mm. has a butter coffee that they now have, but I am not adventurous enough to try it. It's called bullet coffee, right? Over here? Something like that. Not sure. Some, I think it got tied in with like paleo and keto and all the, whatever, oh. <laughs> like all the sort of new diets. Right. Yeah. I think I'd try it. I've never tried it, but I think I would. I don't it's know. Really... It's butter. But butter's delicious. But it's like... It's similar, in a way, to putting milk in your coffee. I'm already so picky with my coffee that I don't know <laughs> if I, I don't, I wouldn't want to try anything that would make me less, like, that would make me love coffee any less. Mm, that's fair. But I'm also open to new experiences, so maybe I could try. And let's be honest, butter is the key to flavor. That's true. Maybe it would make it taste, like, smoother and richer. I could see that. Oh, <laughs> we'll have to go after this. We'll have to, okay, we're getting on a plane, we're going to go to Ethiopia. No, no, I mean, like, we'll have to find a place <laughs> no, nearby. No, we're going to Ethiopia. <laughs> well, that would be cool, too. Maybe we could find a place in Ottawa, and maybe you listeners would want to find a place local to you that may offer some of these ceremonies, because there are quite often Ethiopian restaurants or cafes that will have these available if you're interested. And there are even some in Ottawa if you're in the city. And this idea of ceremony is so interesting. And in this particular case in Ethiopia, the coffee ceremony serves to bring people together, primarily women, to discuss their daily lives, their families, to gossip, and it's always a social gathering. So I don't think that's very different from like our coffee culture in North America. Mm-hmm. It's a very social beverage, I think. Mm-hmm. This just has more structure to the ceremony. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is nice. Like, I think that really kind of elevates the daily experience of it and makes it something more prized um, that you'd maybe prioritize a bit more instead of just, you know, like the, the morning run where you aren't always doing it with other people and it's not always meaningful in that same way. Meaningful in the sense that it gets you up and going and ready for your day, but not necessarily bringing you closer to other people and having that relational aspect to it. Mm-hmm. And the coffee ceremony there has really gone beyond socializing. It's really been embedded in several functions, whether it's to celebrate, honor, or grieve. Functions include weddings and name-giving ceremonies for boys. It's uh, quite the difference, like you say, Robin, from pulling up to your local drive-thru. Despite these differences, in its essence, coffee remains a beverage that continues to pull people together. Going back to the movement of coffee, Arabia, a dominant trading power, held a monopoly over the coffee trade for centuries until the Dutch got a hold of coffee bushes and shipped them to Amsterdam, as well as Sri Lanka and Java, where coffee plantations were established and eventually flourished. By the middle of the 17th century, enough coffee had been grown to export to Europe. Once coffee had arrived in Europe, coffee houses quickly followed. The first in England to be opened was in Oxford in 1651 and was advertised through flyers to introduce and entice people to this new drink. One such flyer, quote, the virtue of the coffee drink, end quote, posted by Pasca Rosé, the first coffee shop in Oxford, explained what coffee was and how it should be enjoyed. Additionally, it also listed medical benefits that one could reap from drinking it as well as a warning of its effects on the body. 
And if you want to read that poster for yourself, we'll include it in our show notes. Sweet. Yeah, so check it out. In 1652, London's first coffee shop opened, and a decade later, there were over 100. Shortly after that, Venice opened one in 1683, and Paris in 1686. Paris's first coffee house, Café Procope, is still open today and became a prototype for all French cafes. Sometimes other alcoholic liqueurs, such as mead, cider, brandy, beer, and ale, were sold in the coffee houses although coffee wasn't sold in other drinking establishments, such as taverns or alehouses. So if you wanted coffee, you had to go to a coffee house. Certain trends in modern North American coffee shops have its roots in Europe's early coffee houses. The coffee was unfiltered, but it was often mixed with milk to make milk coffee, or with sugar, a habit that was increasingly common by the last two decades of the 17th century. Tea and chocolate were commonly served alongside coffee. As they should be, because, I mean, if you're having coffee, you should also be having chocolate. The chocolate drinks served in the coffee houses were much thicker and richer than the coffee and tea. Along with the chocolate grounds, a substantial number of eggs, some sugar, milk, and even a thin slice of white bread could be added into the mix. Other possible chocolate additives included flour or, quote, breakfast chocolate. Sounds like they're baking a cake. It's, a, it's mm-hmm. like, a, like a cake in a mug. Have you guys been in that weird place where you microwave the ingredients in a mug and you make a brownie? I do this often. Yeah. <laughs> do you on the book, you and your microwave? No, I do not. <laughs> do you, Nick? I don't know. Do I? <laughs> Sounds like you do. But, um, but it really does sound just like the ingredients for a chocolate cake, except instead of baking it, you drink it and it bakes in your stomach, which I don't know if that would be good or, I mean, like, are the eggs cooked? Is, is salmonella a concern? I just, I have a lot of questions. I'm interested. But I have a lot of questions. They're just cutting out the middleman, you know? Does it? I I mean, I just, I want (laughs) to try it, but I also don't want to die. If Rocky ate raw eggs, you can eat raw eggs, Robin. I know, but I I don't want a stomachache. (laughs) But do you want to be a champion? (laughs) An important note about these European coffee houses, though, is that they don't lose their sociability. Mm -hmm. That aspect sort of endures through coffee's whole history. Especially in English coffee houses, certain establishments have become defined by political parties. So some interesting facts about coffee. Despite the popularity and rapid spread of coffee in coffee houses, they were not without their own kind of flavor, if you will, of controversy and opposition. Their own brews. They were brewing up controversy. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Uh, In the Ethiopian church, coffee was prohibitive because it was believed to be associated with Islam and paganism. It was also objected to in the Islamic world because it was believed that coffee house patrons would partake in gambling and be involved in irregular and criminally unorthodox sexual situations. So no one really was on the same page about feeling like coffee was good. Although a lot of religions had some some qualms with it. And even some governments had problems with coffee houses, thinking that the political discussions that happened there were threatening to their own regimes. What's that idea of people just being together and socializing? I don't think it's so much coffee, it's just anything that brings people together is dangerous undermining our power <laughs> it's like they're so energetic and they're so angry it's like in hogwarts you can't have any kind of groups of two or more students together in the hall at any one time it's it, dangerous it's like in 1984 it's suspicious to be out at certain times in certain areas with certain people big brother's watching heard it here first <laughs> we've discussed a little bit about how coffee culture has developed over time and across different centuries and canada is no exception to this in here in Canada, we have quite a distinct coffee culture. I mean, it's hopefully a bit more nuanced than just the words Tim Hortons, but we definitely would be remiss if we didn't start at least with Tim Hortons. So Tim Hortons and other similar coffee and donut shops are on almost every corner in Canada. 
And, spoiler alert, Canadians drink a lot of coffee. As of 1996, Albertans drank the most coffee at 3.4 pounds per person, Ooh. followed by BC, 2.8 pounds, Ontario, 2.2 pounds, Quebec, 2 pounds, and the Maritimes, 1.6 pounds. The national average was 2.4 pounds per person. To put that fact into a bit more perspective, a coffee tree on average produces one pound of coffee per year. So let's let's take this back another step. Robin, you and me don't drink that much coffee. So that means Keeley's probably drinking like four pounds of coffee a year. Well, I gotta make up for you guys. <laughs> you guys aren't pulling your weight. She needs to keep those trees producing. Someone's gotta. In 1996, a study calculated how many pounds per year of coffee each person drank in Canada. And they divided it up by the provinces. In 1996, Tim Horton's marketing department tried to figure out why people liked their coffee so much and why they associated the brand primarily with the coffee. In focus groups, they found that Tim Horton's coffee was a part of people's everyday lives. There are stories of women in labor demanding that they go through the drive through and one man even wrote in his will that his whole funeral cortege must go through the drive through and have a coffee on him. That's an interesting way to, to celebrate one's life. <laughs> If it was, but it, it shows you too how much of a defining feature going and getting that double double was for that man. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's something that a lot of people do every single day, at least once a day. At least once. If not multiple times, as we see in our own office, even. Hey, I, I walk past the same people sitting in the window of the bridgehead on my walk to work every Me single too. day. Yeah. So, coffee is the second largest commodity based industry after oil. And in 1995, Canada imported 99 million kilograms of unprocessed coffee. That is insane. Big industry. Yeah. Se second biggest on the planet. That's crazy. People have invaded countries for oil. Yeah. I mean, coffee can be really contentious and really complex, so some might argue the same has been done for coffee. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But we're going to get more into where Canada's modern coffee culture is. So the answer to this question lies in the growth of urban and suburban spaces in the post-Second World War period. That's right. In the 50s and 60s, suburbs became a defining feature of Canadian cityscapes. As well, the car became a part of everyday life. Between 1945 and 1952, vehicle registrations doubled, and they doubled again by 1964. In 1953, no province had one car per household, and by 1966, only Newfoundland and Quebec did not. That's quite the boom. Yeah, that's a lot of cars. Absolutely. And a huge change to the way that people experience and navigate their space. Also a huge change to industry and jobs. Think about how um, uh, industrial spaces in this period are being decentralized. They're being pulled out of the downtowns of cities and put in places like where where um, the Ford and GMC plants are to this day in Oshawa or areas uh, along that Windsor to Montreal corridor. And donut shops, as well as coffee shops, positioned themselves at the center of this new car culture. With lots of new commercial areas that drew cars or were on existing commuter routes, it made sense for them to be, you know, taking advantage of this new area. Yeah, and Tim Hortons would even fly planes over areas, over sort of uh, cities and suburbs, to see where the cars were flowing. That was really smart. They're all about location, location, location. Recon. I mean, it has worked out well for them. Yeah, yeah for, for an example of this sort of development, uh, the first Tim Hortons shop is really indicative of this methodology. It's located on Ottawa Street in Hamilton, Ontario. Uh, this street was a newly developing commercial district, and also the shop was on the mountain, which at that point was really a lot of new houses. It was sort of a suburb at, at that stage in its life. Now it's really a, a defining part of the city, but at that time it was, it was almost empty. Lots of it was just countryside. 
but it did have the steel manufacturer DeFasco's main gate just down the road so that it was guaranteed that people on their way to work, many people were employed by DeFasco, would have to pass by it on their way to work, or at least would see it and maybe would think, hey, you know, before I get to work and start my long shift, maybe I should have some coffee. Very smart. Stemming out of American business practices, a lot of these donut shops and coffee shops are trying to franchise. So they start expanding across Ontario. Tim Hortons actually expanded to a lot of smaller cities too, such as Belleville in 1968 with a population of 35,000, Welland in 1969 with 50,000, and Fort Erie in 1973, population of 28,000. This is an indication of how people lived in the period with new shopping malls, suburbs, and cars. And I think, I think that's really notable that they were going to those places with lower populations just because it, it's kind of in that same vein of Tim Hortons was for the every person. It wasn't for, you know, for the people who were elite and working on Bay Street down in Toronto in the financial district. It wasn't really going for those highbrow people. It was really just trying to be something that could be accessible for anyone and everyone. Yes, they flew planes over to find out where all the people would be, but they wanted to know where, like, the people the everyday people were going to be and how could they access that market and I think that's something that's really stayed with their culture even to today you know when when you see their commercials it's not about making you feel like you can be successful by drinking their coffee it's about making you feel at home and nostalgic and the things that we do on an everyday basis the regular parts of our lives how they can intervene and be part of that and make that better it's I think a really important aspect of their branding and of who they started off being and who they still are carrying forward today. And it goes into that idea too of identity and how you perform your identity through the things that you purchase and the parts of your life that you experience through different businesses. So coffee is no stranger to that. A lot of the people who buy Tim Hortons take pride in the fact that they buy Tim Hortons and not Starbucks right. and not Second Cup and not these higher end places. That is a point of pride. It's the fact that, no, that's, I don't need that stuff. Tim Hortons is good enough for me. It's what, I, it's what I want. And, I mean, McDonald's has been kind of working into that same vein with, you know, them buying that new roast and trying to um, have, the, like, you know, their different branding methods and having the, the promotional items to have free coffee, all of those types of things. Um, but it's that same idea of being the accessible coffee, be, not being too highbrow, not being too fancy pants with what you're ordering. Just give me coffee all I need, just a double-double. Stephen Penfold in his book on the donut talks a lot about Tim Hortons and Canadian coffee culture. And one thing he continually brings up is how Tim Hortons becomes a part of Canadians' identity as being anti-American. Because we have Tim Hortons. We're Canadians. We're different. We're better. Hmm. Even though donut shops at their heart are an American institution. Tim Horton got the idea to start a donut shop when he was playing in Pittsburgh. So as the depression of the 70s and 80s drew to a close, what some American scholars and food writers like Jonathan Gold have called the second wave of coffee consumption began. So they really periodize the history of coffee, quote-unquote, because they only are really looking at America from the 50s to now. They have the first wave starts in the 19th century, and then they'll say the 50s, and then they have the 90s starts. That's the second wave, where coffee is no longer really just considered a caffeine delivery system, an on-the-go drive-through thing. And you have coffee house chains spring up, like Starbucks and Second Cup. For anyone wondering, the proponents of this periodization believe that we are currently living in the third wave of coffee consumption, more focused on taste and the sourcing of coffee beans directly from farmers. But when will we be new wave? New wave? When will we be new wave? <laughs> when David Bowie comes and sings <laughs> us into a new coffee uh, era. <laughs> coffee <laughs> enlightenment. I would love that. 
there seems to be a resurgence in small coffee shops that ties into this third wave of coffee consumption. The focus is centered on fair trade and organic coffee and recreating an atmosphere that harkens back to the pre-franchise takeover by the bigger chains in the 90s and the 2000s, while also creating an ambiance of trendiness and uniqueness. I think that's interesting, though, because the small batch coffee shops might want to market themselves like that, and certainly a lot of them do, and they are true to that. Others, like thinking, for example, in Ottawa, not to always bring it back to Ottawa examples, but Bridgehead was originally like that, and now they've expanded out as the Tim Hortons sort of model. Mm -hmm. So they're following a franchisee model where they're all over Ottawa now. I don't know their full spread, but... I know they've been aggressively expanding across the city. Right, but they do hold to a lot of these ideals of being fair trade and, and having, you know, um, that organic coffee, all, all that kind of atmosphere that is very pre-franchise um, feeling. Like, or at least they, they have they have goals, they have values mm-hmm. and ideals that they hold to while franchising. For sure, for sure. Yeah. And they are delicious. <laughs> Though I think we can all agree that while this periodization is perhaps useful to understand contemporary coffee culture, or certainly to assert its superiority over past coffee cultures, this is a real reductionist way to categorize coffee culture more generally. But what I'm really thinking about on this point is that coffee and our sort of differences in these shops, and other scholars have argued this too, are really just selling you a class system. They're selling you a lifestyle. So by buying Starbucks and putting a photo of it on Instagram, you're showing people that you are the Starbucks brand and that you are the classy kind of person who drinks Starbucks. Well, and having the logo on the cup in the way that it is and having such an artistic logo, especially with something like Starbucks, you're walking around with a status symbol on your cup and, you know, everyone who sees you knows that you spent your money at Starbucks, you can afford to get coffee from Starbucks, and that's the kind of person you are. And then a lot of assumptions can be made about your personality and your means. And then you make those assumptions about yourself as well when you're participating in that space. I think coffee can tell us a lot about our contemporary consumerist culture and how we want to express ourselves through social media to the world, really. That's not so surprising because we started off this episode by discussing the history or the origins, sort of, and the origins myths as well as the origin stories of coffee as well as coffee culture. And from its very beginnings, it's always been about lifestyle. So it seems a natural progression that as things continue and as, you know, it becomes more and more commercialized and materialistic, that that lifestyle aspect of it, that socialization, would be something that could be capitalized upon and that that would become a massive part of the branding itself because at its heart, coffee has been about how we interact with one another and how we experience life, how we uh, celebrate different aspects of you know, moments and occasions, different milestones. It truly, at its heart, is about bringing people together. You know, whether that's Starbucks artificially creating that in its holiday cups, the pumpkin spice lattes that we all like to drink with our friends and take selfies of, or, you know, the really nostalgic cups that we get from Tim Hortons and their commercials. Really, it all boils down to the fact that they're capitalizing on something that's inherent in coffee's history, that it is a relationship. It's about the, the social interactions that we have while we drink this nice warm beverage. So even if you don't love coffee, maybe there's another warm beverage that you enjoy, or I'm sure there's something that you find really brings you together with other people. You know, whether it's hot chocolate or a tea, or maybe you get one of the ice drinks while you're with your friends. I know my husband certainly likes to drink the frappuccinos from Starbucks while I have my chai lattes. 
I'm sure we all have something that we have when we go and we are having these social interactions. And the next time that you pick up your coffee or whatever it is that you use to get you through the day, maybe you'll think about you know, the larger implications of it and the history behind all of it and how it impacts you and how you experience your moments in life and your social interactions with others. All hail the bean. All hail the bean. Mm. And now you're in the know. Notice History is a No History podcast. We are produced by Emily Cuggy and myself, Robin Mullins. This week's researchers were Nick Bridges and Dehai Daniel. Special thanks to Dehai Daniel, who had done her master's thesis research specifically on the history of coffee in Ethiopia. Our audio mixing was done by Healy McCabot. For more information about the topics we covered today, to see that really cool poster that we mentioned, and to check out our bibliography in general, go to our blog at nohistory.ca slash podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at nohistory.ca or you can find us on social media at Notice History. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.